Heavenly Father, you are good to us, and you love us, and um, we do want to praise you. Just like that last song says, we want to praise you forevermore. We want our hearts to be conformed into the reality and the truthfulness of your glory, and for our lives to be equipped in every way to be useful to the master of the house. We want hearts that long to display in boldness and clarity and gentleness and graciousness the truthfulness of the gospel and the desperate need each human being has to know it, to receive it, and to rejoice in it. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we've been working through uh, 2 Timothy, the glories of 2 Timothy over the last few weeks. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, please grab them. Turn with me to 2 Timothy 2. We're going to be in a verse, we're going to start with verse 22 today. Um, and, and this text has really orbited um, Paul's exhortation to Timothy not to be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, but to share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. That's 1 Timothy 1.8, and we've returned to it pretty much every week uh, since we first began this series. It's the idea that we are called to be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, for the glory of Christ and the proclamation of his word, not to run from that or try to avoid it, protect ourselves from that reality, but rather to recognize that that's what we are walking into as being followers of Jesus. And last week, we saw that the necessity of holding fast to the word of God isn't just for evangelism with people who who don't know the gospel, but it's also essential in just conversations with people who have a false understanding of God. We looked at false teachers last week, teachers who uh, in Timothy's church at his time were disavowing the resurrection at the end of the age, the fact that we will become like Christ when he returns, we will be made to be like him. And uh, 1 Timothy 6 told us that this belief, this theology that was warped and broken had led to ungodliness and this destructive pursuit of earthly treasures. And Paul has reminded Timothy, last week we looked at it in verse 19, of God's firm foundation, that it stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. He tells this to Timothy because he wants him to know that that. They're called to, to, to as people in the church who, who name the name of the Lord are called to long to be free from everything in this life, in our hearts, in our minds, that would dishonor God because we love him. We cherish him. We want to be useful to him. He is our treasure. And he uses this picture of the house that I mentioned earlier in verses 20 and 21, this amazing picture of this great house that Paul paints for Timothy to explain to him why He shouldn't be upset or bothered by these false teachers, and why also uh, he should pursue holiness in the church for the sake of the gospel. He says in verse 20, now in the great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. In other words, the the path to usefulness to the master, if you want to be useful to Jesus, that path is the path of holiness. Out of all the things that Paul might tell us are helpful for the sake of, of being valuable when it comes to being used by Jesus for his purposes and his glory, he says the one thing the master desires is that you would be holy, Cleanse yourself, he says. Set yourself apart as holy, not as a means to earn anything from God, not as a means to to, to merit anything, but rather uh, in order to vividly show evidence that your heart is gripped by a greater love than any false teacher could ever bring, a greater joy, a greater glory. That's the picture Paul's painting here. And it's directly linked to, to being unashamed of the gospel, as I hope we 
we'll see as we go through the text today. It's directly connected to being unashamed of Christ. Holiness is what makes us useful to the master of the house because there's this intrinsic link to our zealous desire to be free from sin and our ability to fearlessly and boldly proclaim the gospel. And that connection between the two is what we think of Jesus, how we value Christ. Do we value him? Do we love him? Um, and the question really is, I mean, it boils down to this. In Christianity, often this is the question, what do we treasure ultimately? What's at the center of our hearts? Um, what's more valuable to us? Is Christ more valuable to us? Or is it being uh, accepted by the culture that we live in or, or, or have the approval of man? Is Christ more valuable to us? Or is it our job? Is it our is there a circle of a friends? Is it the lanes that we, we happen to swim in? Or, I mean, if you want to really get serious about it, is Christ more valuable to us, or is it our life, the things we have in this world? And so as we turn to this week's text, what we're going to see today is, is Paul's going to lay out for Timothy very practically, very detailed um, in, his, in, in how he, 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 he intricately lays this out. He's going to lay out what it looks like for the Christian to, to live out that reality and to engage the gospel with people who are hostile to it. How does he deal with these false teachers? How is that connected to this personal holiness? Well, we're going to see that in 2 Timothy 2, verses 22, and we're going to read all the way to the end of this chapter. All right, verse 22, Paul says, after displaying this really amazing picture of this great house and being useful to the master of the house to be set apart for being holy, he says, so, Timothy, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's heavy. Well, it, it's worth reminding right at the start, uh, everyone, including myself, um, that this isn't just for Timothy. This isn't just for pastors. This isn't just for evangelists. Um, it's written for everyone. And we know that if you look at verse 24, you'll see that Paul mentions here the Lord's servant when talking that, about him not being quarrelsome. And of course, he's referring to Timothy, the recipient of the letter, as well as every other servant of the Lord, the Lord's servant, anyone who serves the Lord, meaning everyone who belongs to him through faith. So if you're a Christian right now, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you are a servant of Christ. And so again, we're faced with this truth, and we've seen it several times throughout this book so far, that these commands aren't just for people in full-time ministry. They are for people in the church. And furthermore, this word in Greek uh, for servant isn't just someone who serves. It's not a very, it's, it's not a light word. It's doulos, which means bondservant or slave. And it's a heavy word. It's far more serious than someone who just wants to lend a hand when they've got free time or somebody who wants to, to help, you know, when it makes sense or when it's an easy season. It means that our lives belong to Jesus. It means that he is our master and we are his servants. And therefore, this isn't just something that, that Timothy, when he hears, should say, you know, I aspire to this. Maybe I'll do it someday, hopefully. This is actually describing his current existence. This is the calling that is on his lives, following Jesus Christ. It is that he is a servant of the Lord Jesus, the servant of the master of the house. And so here in verse 22, Paul tells him what servant, a servant looks like. Uh, after saying, telling him to cleanse himself, for, to be useful to the master of the house, he says, first, flee youthful passions 
And then second, he says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So there's two sides to this command at the front end of our text. One is to flee or escape something. The other is to pursue and seek something. They're opposite things, as is evident by the list that he provides. The first one, Timothy's told to, pers- or to flee youthful passions. This word passions is more literally in the Greek, lusts. And I know when we hear that word, our minds probably immediately go to specific categories, um, but that's not necessarily what Paul's thinking about. It may be that. Paul doesn't go there. He doesn't unpack what he means by, by youthful passions. He leaves the category open, recognizing that Timothy knows what these are in his own life better than anybody else, just like us. Whether they are youthful passions or whether you're not so youthful and you still have passions, <laughs> uh, either way, these passions, we're familiar with the ones we have. I mean, chances are you know them very intimately because you deal with them every day. They are desires in our hearts that are contrary to the will of God. Anything that would keep us from pursuing the holiness that he spelled out earlier in verse 21. Paul says, flee these things. Flee them for the sake of your holiness. Flee them. The implication here is that is that they fight or war against our efforts to embrace the calling that we have to be holy, the desire to be useful to the master of the house, which Paul tells us in response to that, listen, you're going to have these desires in you. You need to flee them. Don't let them go easily. Don't just tolerate them. Escape them. These aren't just an innocuous part of your life that you can just toy with like a pet they will destroy you. And we, we can see that clearly here at the end of our passage that we read here. Look at verse 26. He describes somebody who has been consumed by their passion, someone who is in the snare of the devil, someone who's been captured by the enemy to do his will. That's what these passions are. It's not some abstract moral category. It is a snare. I mean, this is the reality of most of the world, every single person who doesn't trust in Jesus, doesn't belong to Christ, this is their daily experience in the snare of the devil doing his will. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, tells us that the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. Ephesians 2 tells us that that those who don't trust in Christ are following the prince of the, the power of the air, that's Satan. They're following the devil. And then he goes on to say it's, he is the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience, which is another synonym for the world without Christ. So this is serious. Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, escape with your life. Don't play games. Leave these passions. Flee them. It is dangerous. It's a snare. It's a trap. Pursue with everything in your might turning from that fleeing, go the opposite direction, pursue with everything in your might, righteousness and faith and love and peace. Pursue those. And no doubt any pursuit we do, as we've said many times over, is a pursuit we do by God's grace. It is a pursuit we do by the power of the Holy Spirit alone. But note that Paul still commands it. The New Testament repeatedly commands this understanding that it will never happen in us passively. We must actively pursue these qualities in our lives and seek them out. Uh, We must pursue them. And Paul says, in addition to pursuing them, we need to pursue them, he says, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is so important because it tells us a few things about how we are called to pursue these things, how we're called to flee the, the youthful passions. First, It says that we're not alone when we do this. We can't stay alone and do this. Paul says that this must be done along with those, which means in community. It means within the context of the local church. Last week, I I mentioned how significant and how important it is to be in a church and not to just be floating out and calling yourself a Christian out in, in, without any church that you're attached to. It's worth repeating here again. Paul is describing 
a, an experience in the Christian life, the, the fleeing of youthful passions and the pursuit of holiness. He's describing this experience as an experience that cannot happen outside of the church in any real way. It can't happen outside of Christian fellowship. The pursuit of righteousness, doing the right things, honoring God in your actions and in your thoughts, the pursuit of faith, trusting in Jesus, holding fast to him, the pursuit of love, caring for someone from the genuine, sincere part of your heart, loving them, and the peace, being graciously calm when everything is falling apart. Those experiences are not cultivated in a vacuum. They're not. They are pursued together. Hebrews, uh, the author of Hebrews hammers this home multiple times. One of them, probably the most incisive, is Hebrews 3.13, where he says, to the church, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That deceitfulness of sin is the trap in verse 26. It's the snare of the devil. This command that the author of Hebrews gives us is impossible to do outside of the church. Think about it. We have no ability to exhort one another, you exhorting me, me exhorting you, every day if church is simply a an event that we go to on Sundays or Saturdays, or if it's a place that we drive up to and go into, and rather than being people in our lives that we do life with, that we eat with, that we drink with, that we talk with, that we love. So that reality of church experience is essential to the Christian life. Um, and when we're not involved in a church in that way, when we're not connected to a local church, we are severing ourselves from the flock of God. We are pulling ourselves away from the flock. And if I'm real with you, we are fitting ourselves to be devoured by wolves. The wolves that Paul mentioned last week, the wolves that Timothy's concerned about, these false teachers who are preaching a, a, a false gospel, attracting people to them that aren't being exhorted every day. And so it is eternally deadly to wander off away from a local church. We must be part of a local body of believers. Furthermore, Paul says here that we must do this alongside people who call on the Lord from a pure heart, from a pure heart. That's an important qualifier because it means they're real believers. They are sincerely, genuinely longing to be with God, calling on God. And that might seem like a given to some of us. Oh, well, a church is that. A church are believers. But I, I can assure you that that's not the case. I mean, sad, sorrowfully, I'll, I, it, it is very clear across this country, and I could even say across the world, that there are many places, many places that call themselves churches, and yet they have no people inside of them who actually call on the Lord from a pure heart. It's a game, some kind of religious practice, maybe, some kind of cultural sort of experience in America. What's really popular is you go to church and they give you a life management lesson. You talk about things using spiritual terms, maybe even using some words from this book, singing songs that are helpful and encouraging to people on a physical level, an emotional level, but they're totally detached from Christ. And so, that's not who we must join with. We must do this along with people who are calling on the Lord, people who are sincere and real about calling on the Lord and about knowing that we are, we are servants of a very real master. Servants that we are called to be are servants who are, who are zealous to pursue the will of their master. And those are the ones we need, we need to be with. Those are the ones we need to, to, to belong to in the church body. And for what it's worth, I'm eternally grateful for this church because I know over the last four years has been my experience that you are people who really do want Jesus. You really do call on the Lord from a sincere and pure heart, and I'm grateful for that. It has been a gift, gift and a blessing. Um, well, Paul doesn't just sit with this one command at the beginning. We've got to move along here because there's a lot more text. He wants to re-engage what he brought up earlier with regard to the false teachers, um, which we saw last week. He's instructed Timothy, 
broadly in this first verse about how we must live the Christian life. He builds on this foundation now of holiness, this fleeing of the passions and the pursuit of holiness. And he shows us what it is for the fruit of that life to grow out into the proclamation of the gospel, especially with regard to these false teachers. Like we said earlier, these false teachers are people who are saying the resurrection is not going to happen, and therefore they're using godliness and some religious activity that they have as a means for gain. They, they see the true God. They see what obedience to God looks like. And they do that in order to get their real God, whatever that might be, whatever that is, whatever they desire most, whatever consumes their mind and their heart when they're lying in bed at night and there's no other thoughts. That's the heart of this false teaching. And so there's this theological argument that these false teachers have developed that gratify the desires of the flesh, the youthful passions of these people, and is created by twisting the scriptures. And Paul calls them in Acts 20, wolves, fierce wolves that will not spare the flock because the, the false teaching is bred contention, division, and quarreling in the church. And Paul's going to tell Timothy how he must engage this. Look at verse 23. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. This is how we're called to engage anyone in our lives who's opposed to Christ. And um, Paul's admonition here should probably come to us as a surprise, to be perfectly honest, because we live in a world where most Christian activity is on both sides of this. It is either straight-up hatred and antagonism towards the world or it's complete capitulation and compromise. Very little is where Paul actually is, is called us to here in this text. He's saying that neither of those things, compromise or antagonism, are what we've been called to. Um, in fact, um, he's saying here the Christians had to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. In the Greek, this word controversies is zetesis. It means speculation and debates about things. Christians aren't to be involved in worldly speculation, worldly debates, because, Paul says, they read quarrels. They, they create arguments. And if I'm real with you, <laughs> the last two years, this has probably been more true than any years before it. I can, at least in my, in my memory, um, there is an unhealthy preoccupation in the church right now to argue about anything. I mean, the question that I ask is, do I find myself in arguments and quarrels about things of zero eternal value? Because Paul's telling us that shouldn't be the case. We, I think we often tend to, I hate to say this, especially Americans, <laughs> often tend to fight for our rights and our views of theology and I'm not talking about the gospel, just peripheral things in our views of science, in our views of politics. And we fight for our views in those arenas. They're important arenas to talk about, but we quarrel in those arenas. And Paul says in verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. He doesn't say, hey, listen, there's a category of things you want to fight and argue about. And there's a category of things that you don't fight and argue about. He says, do not quarrel. Do not fight. And he says this in the context, if I'm real with you, where I'm thinking like, this is where you'd want to fight. Think about what's going on here. He's referring to wolves that have come into the sheepfold and they're devouring the sheep. They're actively deceiving people. And Paul says to Timothy, listen, don't quarrel with them. Don't fight with them. Don't be argumentative with them. Now that does not mean we are simply to be quiet and complicit. It just means we don't quarrel. We don't fight. And he's going to show us how. In verse 24, he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So this is how we engage the world. 
And when I say world there, I just want to be clear, like that's what he's talking about when he uses the words opponents. Anybody who doesn't embrace the gospel is an opponent to the gospel. We saw that last week, 1 Timothy 6, when Paul said that anyone who doesn't embrace doctrine or the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching that accords with godliness, which that category includes the entire world outside of Christ. So this is the group that he's talking about here. Anyone who's not a believer, whether they're a false teacher that has been making rounds in the church, or whether there's someone who's never set foot in a building that hosts a church. And Paul says here that although we do not argue with them, we do not quarrel with them, we are not to simply accept the world's view of reality. He has two different things we're supposed to do here, teach and correct. Teach and correct those who are in the world. But he's called us to do it a specific way, a very specific way. First, he says we need to be kind to everyone. That's the first defining reality and dimension of how we engage unbelievers. Kindness. Not just to people we like, not just to people who agree, agree with us. Be kind to everyone. This is a hard command. It's a hard command. It's a hard command for us. Imagine Timothy's situation. Kindness is the first quality that Paul brings up when telling Timothy how to engage false, false teachers that are, according to verse 26, doing the will of Satan. These are evil and destructive people, and Paul says to Timothy, be kind to them. It sounds a lot like Jesus, to be perfectly honest. Luke 6, where he says, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. Matthew says, pray for those who persecute you. That's hard. This is what we're called to every day. I, when, I, when I got to this point, I, I just had to ask myself, like, is this, are the interactions in my life with people I disagree with, is, is kindness the defining reality of my heart in those moments, or is something else defining it? I'm not going to labor kindness uh, any more than I have uh, because Paul's going to labor it with other words. But let's continue. He says we're, we need to be able to teach. What does he mean here? Well, he obviously isn't talking about public teaching uh, because these are false teachers that Timothy needs to engage, and he's going to engage them through not oratory. He's going to engage them through dialogue, through, through having conversations. And so in this specific context, Paul isn't seeing teaching as some kind of skill set or oratory gift that he has from God. It's the ability that he already told Timothy to do in verse, 20, verse 15 of the same chapter. If you remember last week, verse 15, he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So that's, that's being able to teach, rightly handling this book. We don't need to be a public speaker in order to be able to teach. We simply need to know the truth, and we do that in the Scriptures. That's where we come face-to-face -face with the Scriptures. This isn't to denigrate what's going on right here. This is important. Exhortation, public teaching, is, is, is a prerequisite of the church from the New Testament. But it's just to say that, that every servant of the Lord is able to teach in this way because they know the Lord and they see the world through the lens that he has given them, namely the scriptures. And they say what they see from this book. And he says, he continues here, he says, as we teach, we, we are to be patiently enduring evil. Patiently endure evil. Our engagement with unbelievers and false teachers and people who are opposed to the gospel should not be marked by impatience, should not be marked by a desire to get the last word in. It should instead be forbearing, long-suffering, patient. Now, this doesn't mean that we're silent. We're going to see that. This doesn't mean that we just blindly agree with whatever they say. No, but it means that we are not driven by the need to be right in their eyes at the end of the day, to get the extra word in, to try to force our opinion on them. We live as people who know that God is the only one who matters in the end. 
And then on the final day, he will square all accounts. And we will be held accountable for what we said and how we said it, not whether or not they believed it. Paul continues here in verse 25. We must correct our opponents with gentleness. This is huge. Lot in this one little phrase. Note that he doesn't say that we are to affirm them or to ignore them. Uh, the Christian is not to do either. There are certainly times when we are called to avoid certain people, avoid certain activities. He said that earlier in this chapter. He's going to say it in chapter 3. There are aspects of this that we must avoid. We must walk away from and leave and not be associated with. But the avoidance of being associated with false teachers isn't at the expense of correcting the opponent. Because we are believers who live in this world, we are surrounded by people who disagree with what we believe because they are in opposition to this book. They don't like this book. Whether they know it in their mind or not, or whether they just express it in their hearts, they have a native opposition to the words of God. They are opponents. Whether we see them that way, whether we want to see them that way or not, that's what they are. Their lives and their hearts and their affections oppose God by opposing what he said. And it is not loving for us to act in a way that implies that that's okay. It's not loving to them. I was talking to a Christian friend this week. This week was a hard week of long work days. And the guy I was working with happens to be a Christian who goes to another church nearby Reach. He just happens to work on my team uh, at Microsoft. And um, I was having a conversation with him today about a really hard topic, um, how Christians engage unbelievers on the topics of gender, sexual orientation, and marriage. <clears throat> and even by me saying that, some of you guys are like, oh no, <laughs> is he going to talk about this stuff? Those things are not easy to talk about. They are hard to talk about, especially in the current culture that we live in, not only because of the native hostility that already exists to the Christian view of gender, the Christian view of, of sexuality and marriage, which has been in existence since Christianity first came into existence, <laughs> but also because most Christians in America have either stopped engaging these issues altogether out of fear, or they've done the exact opposite, and they engage them only when it's politically expedient for their party, for their family. Um, and they engage them usually in that context from a place of disdain and disgust instead of actually dealing with the core of the issue, which is the people that are being impacted and affected by this false reality. Both those approaches are wrong because they fail, they fail to, they fail to, to, uh, to avoid false teaching by implicitly affirming it, or they fail to correct it with gentleness by making it into a political issue that, that can be lobbied against. But here's the deal. If what Jesus has said about God in the book of Matthew, making mankind in both male and female, if what he said there, that that's true from the beginning, and that this male-female reality is his design for marriage from the beginning. If that's true, then I would challenge all of us, myself included, that it may feel loving for us not to correct these, area, these, these errors in, in the worldviews of those around us, but that's what Paul is explicitly telling us to do. And it is loving to engage these now if 1 Corinthians 6 is true. 1 Corinthians 6 says that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he describes this. He says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, implying that it's easier to be deceived here than not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. If, if, if God, as he inspired the Apostle Paul, is telling us the truth in that statement, 
then eternity is at stake for the people we love, for the people we work with. And I know many, many professing Christians err on the side of just straight up quarreling, especially on social media, about the sexual sins in our present culture. That's wrong. Paul's made it abundantly clear. We're not to quarrel. But the solution, the, the opposite response, the right response isn't silence or implicit affirmation. The right response is to correct with gentleness. Gentleness and to speak into the lives of those God has graciously brought into our sphere of influence with kindness and patience and grace. It is simply unloving to them to do anything else. And we see in verse 25 why correcting our opponents is so important for their eternal destiny. Look at what it says here. Paul says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Such a profound statement the sermon series in that one verse or two verses. Paul says that, that through our kind, gentle correction, those who do not know the truth can actually come to know it. That's what he's saying here. They can come to their senses and be saved from the snare of the devil. They can escape, he says, the snare of the devil, which is where they're presently captive, even if they're blind to that captivity even if they believe, I'm just doing what I want to do. That's not actually what's going on. They're actually doing the will of Satan. To live and to embrace things contrary to God's word isn't just to be independent-minded or clever. It isn't just to do what you want to do. It's to be trapped and to be enslaved to selfish desires and Paul says that the believer has been given a gift by God. They are in a unique position to step in and to stop this captivity. They can stop it. It's a radical thought. Think about it. God, in and through our speaking, might grant them repentance. Think about the depths of what that is. Lead them to a knowledge of the truth. This embracing, the knowledge of the truth is this phrase that Paul uses, especially in the pastoral epistles, of embracing the gospel knowing the truth, having it be part of your life, this knowledge of the truth that he talks about. And this is how it happens, through gentle, patient, kind correction. This is how Paul tells us people come to repentance. And I want to lean on something here because it's very important for us not to miss. We can read over this and just completely scan over this reality Paul is saying that God is the one who is ultimately sovereign in salvation. Look at the language he uses here in verse 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance. May grant. Grant is didomi in the Greek. It means to give. God may give them repentance. This isn't forgiveness that he's talking about here. Think about this. This is what's required from us for us to have forgiveness. We must repent and trust in Jesus. Paul's saying that God gives repentance. The very act of turning from sin to God is a gift from God. And the implication of Paul's language here is he doesn't see repentance as this naked act of the will. He doesn't see repentance as the product of, of our, our willpower or even prevenient grace that everybody has. He doesn't see it like that. He sees it as a gift of God given or not by God. God may choose to give this. God may choose not to give this. He has no obligation to do it. Why else would Paul use language here that indicates that he might withhold something if it pleases him in his wisdom? The very basis of this statement in verse 25 is that God isn't obligated to give this ever, but astonishingly, he does. He reaches into the deadness of an opponent's heart and brings about life where there was only rebellion before. 
And Paul knows this intimately. I mean, he's, he says as much to Timothy in the first letter. Uh, let me read you his own words, 1 Timothy 1. Formerly, Timothy, I was a blasphemer, Paul says, persecutor and insolent opponent. Sound familiar? But, he says, <laughs> I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and in the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This is Paul's story. That's why he can tell Timothy this. This is his story. He knows this because he's experienced it firsthand. He knows what it's like to wake up one day with the goal of dead set goal of, being, of, of bringing Christians from Damascus to Jerusalem in chains. That was his plan. That was the plan of record. I'm going to do that. And then on the way to Damascus, everything changes. He encounters Jesus. And he is granted repentance. In fact, not only is he granted repentance, he is told, Paul, you are going to be my mouthpiece to the Gentiles. And through you, I will grant other people repentance. Look at Acts 26. Paul's recounting this on trial before Agrippa. He says, this is what Jesus said to me. Jesus told me, I am sending you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn, repent from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Paul knows this. He's experienced this firsthand. He knows that God is the one who grants repentance. God can open the hardest heart. It doesn't matter how hard that is, uh, heart is. It doesn't matter how, how resistant they are, how egregious their wickedness is. God can open their heart because God opened his heart. God granted him repentance. And in 1 Timothy, he continues that passage saying, listen, if he can save me, he can save anybody. He can save anyone. Because, Timothy, I am the foremost sinner. Ain't no one got anything on me. This is Paul's story. And it's written in the scriptures so that we would have confidence that God actually can do these things. God is the one who grants repentance. It doesn't come by clever arguments. Our clever arguments don't elicit repentance. Our ability to persuade people doesn't. Uh, our forcefulness in, in showing our opinions does not grant repentance. And even when the other person on the other side of the table is amenable to the gospel, seemingly, that isn't decisive in granting repentance. None of those things matter in the end. God alone matters in that moment. Paul says that God can grant someone repentance and lead them to a knowledge of the truth where they will come to their senses and escape the devil. That's real. And it is particularly real for me. Um, some of you know my story. I don't, I don't like bringing my story into sermons ever, to be perfectly honest, um, mainly because I run out of time in the manuscript, but, um, and because I just don't like talking about myself. But, uh, but because this is God's story, ultimately, I want to share with it today uh, something from it. Other people have told me I should because of the topic. I grew up in church, um, and I knew Christianity. I knew the Bible. Um, I knew all of those things. I ran in those lanes. That was my life as a kid. Went to a Christian school. I knew this book really well. But in my teens, my grandfather suddenly died of cancer. And in the middle of being in youthful passions and dealing with all the idolatries of that time in your life as a teenager, I grew slowly and then quickly to despise Christianity and despise the God of Christianity. And for years, for years, I was a passionate atheist who defied God. Passionate, had all sorts of reasons in my mind for why I, I was convinced that, that this book had nothing on me. I don't have to worry about what this book says. Plenty of reasons. And that was my life for years. And then through a series of dramatic events, which I won't account for fully here because we just don't have time, I was confronted repeatedly with the gospel. And God at, at some point reached into my heart and said, you're mine. 
He came for me. He granted me repentance. After years of rebellion, he stepped into my world and granted me repentance, seemingly out of nowhere. I mean, there was all sorts of different facets there. One of them, a specific moment, years before I came to faith, was after having run away from my family in Florida to Los Angeles, where a lot of people run away to, I remember physically coming home. I I had been there for several months and things were going bad. And my mom said, hey, listen, we're going to get you a ticket and you're going to come back. And the problem with this is that I had made such shipwreck of my relationship with my father that there was, I could not conceive of any way that I could come back. I had burnt bridges to the ground. Scorched earth. And... My mom said, listen, we got a ticket for you. You're going to get on a plane. You're going to come back home. 21-year-old punk kid. And so I came home, and um, I remember getting out of the plane and going into the airport. And after having severely ruined my relationship with my father, he comes up to me and he hugs me. the dad I had dishonored and treated shamefully, he hugs me. I remember this as clear as yesterday. And when that happened, although I didn't have the vocabulary to express it, and although I didn't even really believe at that point in time, it was a marker in a series of markers that would happen later that would bring me back to the gospel. But God, knowing that I know this book, even though I didn't trust it, brought me back to the story of the prodigal son. He surfaced it up into my heart and he said, I want you to know, Jeremy, that's your story. That's your story. A story of a father who has two sons. One of his sons goes off, takes his inheritance, spends it on everything in the world. Everything in the world. Every possible idolatry and youthful passion you can conceive of until he's totally brought ruination on his life. And then he comes to his senses somehow and comes back home in ashamed of his own wickedness He's walking toward his home, and you know the story. His father sees him from a long way off and runs and then hugs him. Because he can grant repentance to anyone. That's why. But listen to me, it does not happen apart from the gospel. We must correct our opponents with gentleness. There needs to be a gospel reality. The prodigal son would have never returned home if he didn't know what his father was like. And I would have never came to God in the end if people hadn't spoken the gospel and lived the gospel in my life vividly. And so this is why, this is the connection point to God granting repentance, this is why we must never ever be ashamed of the gospel because there is no heart in this world that is so defiant such that God can't reach into it and grant repentance in a moment. He can, and it happens through correction with gentleness. It happens through speaking graciously about the love of Christ and the desperate need for the person on the other side of the table to know that love and to experience it. And when we do that, God may choose in his gracious wisdom to break the grip of darkness on them and to show them the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel, which is that in order for any of us to have ever repented, God had to give his own very son to buy that repentance, to pay for it that in order for us to come to faith, God had to part with the greatest treasure in the universe, Christ. And on the cross, they experienced a rending that you and I do not have vocabulary for and will never know. They had been with each other from all eternity. But it was in that moment that God vindicated his right to grant repentance to enemies 
who killed his son. And he does that. He grants repentance through the message of the cross. We cannot afford to be ashamed of this message. We just can't. This goes back to what I said at the beginning. Um, that personal holiness is really just a reflection of the life that values Christ supremely. I just want to be useful to you, Jesus. I want to be useful to the master of the house. It, it is, that life is the garden in which gracious, gracious, gentle, kind correction grows. It doesn't grow anywhere else. What we think about Christ as his servants, whether he is or is not the infinite treasure that this book holds out, determines whether or not we are willing to say to others what we need to say to them. whether or not we'll be ashamed in that moment. This is the difference between life or death for people in our lives. We know this. You know people right now in your mind, in your heart. You can see their faces that don't know this gospel. I just want you to know the gospel is able to save because God is the one that's granting repentance. And therefore, we must never, ever, ever, ever be ashamed of this gospel. Let's pray. Father God, you are glorious and worthy of so many more words of praise than I could possibly muster. But the weightiness and the difficulty of, of proclaiming the gospel is very real for your people. These issues are scary. Correcting our opponents is scary to us. We're, we're afraid. We don't want to lose friends. We don't want to be weird. We don't want to be awkward. We don't want to lose our reputation. We don't want to lose our jobs. Father, I just ask that you would grant us by the Holy Spirit the ability, the strength, the wisdom to live what Paul has commanded here. to be kind to everyone, to patiently endure evil, to be able to teach and correct our opponents with gentleness. Father, help us to not talk about these things as though we would like to do them one day, but may it be the heartbeat of our lives. May, may we not be insular Christians who are trying to to deal with the issues in culture at a distance, but may we get our, our arms around people who hate us and hate Jesus. And may we love them because we know <laughs> that you can grant them repentance and bring them to a knowledge of the truth. We plead with you for this, Father, in the name of Christ Jesus, your precious Son.